Throughout Romans 1 through 11, Paul has told us the gospel. A man named Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, died for us. It was because of his sacrifice, his willingness to carry a cross, to be nailed upon it, to drink the deep dregs of God's wrath, that we have been declared right with God and given a place in God's family. He rose again, and now he stands as the new Adam, who is bringing about a new creation that is free from sin. Now, for Paul, that gospel, all those things, all those things that are facts and truths for Paul, carries with it a demand upon our lives. When we think about Paul, we remember his unique ability to suffer well and to last in suffering. He counted everything as lost, literally called everything trash when it, com- when it is compared with knowing Jesus. In both Philippians 2 and in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he tells his readers that he's ready to be poured out like a drink offering in serving others. Why? Because it was because that Christ gave himself up for us that Paul is able to give himself up for others. Paul knew that even if serving meant forfeiting his life, he was doing nothing more than what Jesus had already done for him. I think that's the point of Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Why should we serve one another, as Romans 12 says? While the rest of the world is thinking about how to exalt itself, why should we renew our minds by thinking about how to humble ourselves and seek others' good before our own? Because this is precisely what Jesus has done for you. Is it not? Giving himself up, humbling himself. Applying the gospel means living the gospel for others. Jesus took on the form of a servant so that we might live. And so we take on the form of servants so that others might see Jesus. In applying the gospel, we give what we ourselves have already been given. We give of what we've already been given. The grace we've been given is meant to be distributed as we live and work and serve each other. Now, Paul highlights how the gospel should affect our relationships by addressing the way we think about ourselves. He writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, few things hinder a healthy relationship, whether it's among friends, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a church. Few things hinder a healthy relationship like an unhealthy ego, this overbloated self-esteem. How we think about the self reveals a lot about how you have taken in the gospel, how the gospel has shaped you, even most importantly, how the gospel has humbled you. That is part of the unique transformation that happens when we believe the gospel is the gospel doesn't make us more prideful. It doesn't build up our self-esteem. It lowers the esteem of the self. It, it lessens our pride. I think when Paul says not to think of oneself more highly than he ought to think, he seems to be attacking more than just how we evaluate ourselves. Certainly, he is telling us not to think about ourselves arrogantly. In other passages, he reminds us that we have nothing to boast about. What do we have that we've not been given? However, in in the context of this passage, I think the The problem isn't just that we think of ourselves as more than we really are, 
But instead, I think the primary problem is that we think about ourselves more than we should. You see the difference between those two things? In, in, in one state, we're exalting ourselves and seeing ourselves as more important or more skilled or more special than we really are, and we're puffing ourselves up in that way. But I think that one of the primary problems in Paul's mind is that we think about ourselves too much, regardless of how we think about ourselves. The fact of the matter is, is that we think about ourselves primarily, that we think about ourselves more than we think about anything else. Even the words that he uses, think more highly, uh, can be translated as thinking beyond, right? To, to, to think, um, uh, to have this over-obsession of concern for the self, a focus on the self. Now, it certainly happens, but I think few of us would admit that we think of ourselves as better than others. Most of us wouldn't even admit that to ourselves, right? So, so if we were sitting in a private room by ourselves and we asked ourselves the question, do I think of myself as better than others? Most of us would tell ourselves, no, I, I don't. I, I, I genuinely don't. Whether that happens or not, or whether that's true or not, even the most arrogant guy in the world may not you know, admit that he thinks of himself as better than others. However, the fact still stands. We are overly concerned with ourselves. We think about ourselves a lot, beyond what is good. Thinking about myself, what I want, my reputation, my special gifting, whether someone's looking at my shirt, my new shirt while I'm in worship, right? Whether people are talking about me, whatever it is, we think about ourselves a whole lot. Even if we don't think of ourselves as being elitist, even if we're not thinking of ourselves as better than others, there's still that problem of what you think about the most. As Timothy Keller points out, gospel humility has little to do with thinking more of myself or less of myself. Instead, gospel humility is thinking of myself less. The man who thinks he's the smartest man in the room and the man who thinks he's the dumbest man in the room both have the same spiritual problem. They both are committing the same fallacy, the same error. Though both men may evaluate their intellectual value differently, one man thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, the other guy thinks he's the dumbest man in the room, but they both have the same pride that drives them to be obsessed with themselves. The woman who thinks a lot, thinks too much about her attractiveness, and the woman who thinks she's not attractive at all, these two women, though they would appraise themselves differently, one thinking she's most beautiful, one thinking she's not beautiful at all, again, it's the same problem. It's the primary focus on the self. It's not that they're thinking too much or too little of themselves, but that they're thinking of themselves too much. It's, it's not just the quality that's the problem, as if uh, whether I'm good or bad. It's the quantity of the problem, how much of my day I spend thinking about me. As commentator Douglas Moo says, the primary problem is not think, the thinking itself. It's the direction of your thinking. Are you thinking about others or are you thinking about yourself right now at this moment? You know, are we, are we concerned with how to serve and love others? Are we, are we here in church today because of what we can get from the church, what we can get from being others? Even the overbloated ego of I made it to church today is a selfish ambition. It's conceited. 
I have my kids in the children's ministry because it gives me a good hour of relaxation not having to worry about. Well, yes, that's, that's great, but again, it's self-centered kind of thinking rather than how can I serve others. Now, to prove the point that he's not just talking about and attacking whether you think of yourself as good or bad, but you think too much of yourself, just look at his contrast that he provides. Don't think beyond, right? Don't think too much of yourself. Instead, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, scholars debate what that means. What is the measure of faith? Is that spiritual gifts, like, like a, 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 a portions of faith that God has given to people so that they can then use that faith out in their lives? Is that spiritual gifts? Or is that faith itself? I don't know. <laughs> scholars don't know. They make very convincing cases. They both go back and forth and could be both and, or it could be either or, I don't know. Nevertheless, whatever this measure of faith might be, when it is properly applied, it results in serving others, as we will see in verses four through eight. High-minded thinking on the one side focuses on me. Sober thinking on the other hand focuses on the faith, the, the thing that God has given me, the thing that God has done for me in, in Jesus Christ. Thinking of oneself too highly leads in a self-oriented direction. It's like navel-gazing, right? Like looking at yourself, whereas looking at others, serving others, being sober-minded means having an others-oriented direction to your thought process. Now, I think here's what Paul's goal is to do. He's, he's trying to get us to move from being boastful or even in the other direction, boastful about our deficiencies. He's trying to move us from being boastful self-seekers to being humble self-givers, to be more modeled after Christ in that way. Whoever we are, I think it's worth admitting that our most natural response is to think first about what something's gonna cost me or how it's gonna benefit me. And Paul wants us to reject that. He wants the gospel to transform us and empower us to think about others first and how others in the room might could use our service to them, our love to them, our humility. Humble, sober thinking means abdicating the throne of your gifts, abdicating the throne of your time. Your time is not for you, it's for others. Your ability to speak well is not for you, it's meant to be for the good of others. Your ability to wield a hammer is not for you, it's for others, to change the direction of your thinking where the self is no longer sitting in the throne of priority of your mind, but instead others are, that you're willing to be used and spent and poured out like a drink offering so that others could experience the love and glory of Christ. As has been said before, everybody wants to be considered a servant until people treat them like it. I think that's true for us. We just naturally are against this idea of being walked on, stepped on, treated that way. But again, the problem is we haven't quite abdicated self off the throne. We're still putting ourselves up in the highest priority of what I want and what I need to do and what this is going to do for me. This kind of others-oriented thinking is central to having a renewed mind. When Paul says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, I think this particular point of serving others and looking for ways to love and serve others is a crucial aspect of following Christ. It's not just about you. It's about the people around you. It's about how to love and serve them. Jesus thought this way. 
So we should think this way. That's, that's Paul's point in Philippians chapter 2, which Moy read for us earlier. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Now, this isn't saying that you shouldn't think about what it's going to cost you or how it's going to benefit you. It's just not what you're thinking about first, right? It's not your primary priority. There's certainly times where you have to think about what do, counting the cost of what something might cost you to do a certain thing. That's wisdom. But that's not the primary concern. That's not how Christ thought. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, the word for mind in Philippians 2 is the same as think in Revelation 12.3. We are to have the mind of Christ by thinking soberly, which inevitably leads us to do one thing, serve others. That's what it leads us to do. How do you know when you're thinking soberly? Well, you're serving other people. You're not serving the self. You're not all about yourself. You're, you're serving others. Paul reminds us that Jesus did not operate in the way that we often do. We operate in selfish ambition. We, o- we operate in self-importance. We operate in what's good for us. When something becomes too costly, we turn tail and run. That, that tends to be the way that we operate. Jesus doesn't operate that way. Instead of being served, which would have been his due right as king of the universe and the one through whom all things were made and by uh, whom all things exist, he humbly served others by dying as a ransom for sin, giving his life up for you. He was not just concerned for his own good and glory. He was concerned for us and for our salvation. Even his resurrection was not for his singular benefit. You know, as, as a dad, there's sometimes I think, man, I have worked hard. There's some things that are for me, right? The chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream in the freezer is for me. The milk, the juice I share, okay? The ketchup and all the condiments and all the good food in the fridge, I'll share. Chocolate chip cookie dough is mine. I've earned it. There's a special benefit to it, Right? You would think that if anybody had the right to claim a special benefit, it would be Jesus and his resurrection. He earned that and all the glory that came from it. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't doesn't even withhold the glory of his resurrection for his own benefit. He doesn't section it off saying, my death is for you, my resurrection glory is for me. No, what he does is, my death is for you, and even my resurrection glory is giving you a foretaste of the glory that you're going to have. In the same way that God has raised me up from the dead, he's going to raise you up one day, and you're going to become sons of God, daughters of God, to dwell with God forever, and you're going to have an inheritance and live forever and ever and ever, feasting at God's table. This is just the beginning. How amazing is that? That not even the resurrection does he pull off the table and say, mine He shares with us what is his, his sonship, his his status is son of God. We are now sons and daughters of God. He owns everything. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And yet scripture says that we will one day reign with him. He didn't even keep the throne for himself. He shares, he gives, he's always giving. This is who God is, the ever-giving God who's always giving and never receiving. What does he receive from us? Glory? That's already his. He's always giving. 
And just as Jesus is the supreme giver who gave himself and made it so that all that's his, sonship, presence of God, going to prepare a place for us so that his place could be our place, his house, our house, his world, our world, his dominion, our dominion, his life, our life, his death, my death, his tomb, my tomb, his resurrection, my resurrection, all of that shared with me forever and ever and all of its glory, just as he has given that way of himself, so we're to give ourselves to others in everyday ways. Now you don't understand though. They wanted my Saturday night. <laughs> they, wanted my, they wanted me to come in an hour early on Sunday. Friends, what do we have that we can keep off the table compared to what Christ has given us? And Paul's answer to that is nothing. If you're gonna be shaped and modeled after the mind of Christ, then you're going to be giving of yourself. Not just giving of your money. That's, I, I, this church is funded by your tithe, so I don't wanna undermine the gift of giving money. That is the easiest way to give. Giving of yourself to others, your time, your talents, your energy, your mind, your heart, your tears, your laughter, your presence, all of that, that is much more difficult. And that is the kinds of things that you've been called to give to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in contrast to thinking too much about oneself, Sober thinking leads us to consider our unique place in the body and how we can serve others from that unique place. Paul writes, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, Paul compares Christian unity to the unity found in our physical body. The body has many members. We have fingers and knuckles and hands and wrists and forearms, elbows, biceps, triceps, shoulders, back, neck, legs, and so on. Yet all these members come together to make one organism, one body. An arm is a member of the body, right? But an arm by itself is not a body. You see the difference between those two things? In fact, an arm that has been severed from the body is relatively unhealthy, right? It's a dead arm. It's a disgusting obscenity to see an arm just standing there separated from a body. An arm and leg may be unique. Like my arm is, it performs a different function than my legs. I've tried to walk on my hands. I can't do it, right? I've tried to drink coffee with my feet. Can't do it right? They don't have the same function. And yet, unique as they may be, they both stand together in the same singular body with their respective functions. Still, the arm and the leg belong together in a healthy body, different though they may be. Paul goes on to say that we are individually members of one another. I think it's important to note that Paul does not deny that we are individuals. Each of us are individuals. He only denies our individualism. Do you understand the difference? Individuals recognizing that God has made me and he has given me unique gifts as an individual. Individualism is acting as if it's all about me and if it's for me and I could do these things by myself. He denies, he rejects individualism that says that you could survive on your own. You are an individual member, but you are a member that survives and lives and thrives in the, 
in relationship to the body, to the healthy organism that God has given life to. He's given us all kinds of things, different functions. There's people here that can teach. There's people here that can sing. There's people here that have money to be able to give. There's people here that have lots of time to serve with. He's given us all different kinds of functions. And yet, even in those individual functions, they're meant to be put in service to the whole body. Just like my fingers don't serve my fingers. My fingers sometimes serve my mouth. Most often, they serve my mouth, right? I mean, I could probably eat food off a plate like a dog, but I probably shouldn't, right? So my fingers don't serve just my fingers. They serve my mouth. In the same way, none of us serve ourselves. We are one member among many members who make up the body of Christ. Now, in this way, here's the thing I want you to understand. This is something people do, do not remember and most often forget. God in the gospel is bringing together a diverse unity in which different people, different gifts, different capabilities, different functions, different even priorities in a sense, they come together through one unbreakable bond in Christ. As a church, you don't want people that look just like you. That's, that's not, I mean, that's like having all arms, right? That's, that's, that's alien, right? That's not, that's not a healthy body. We, we shouldn't all be the same. We shouldn't all think the same way. We shouldn't all do the same way. In fact, in a body where there's a contrast, where someone might disagree with me and who might actually be bold enough to tell me, hey, I'm wrong, that actually is God's gift to me because he's making a, a diverse unity. You find a church where everybody looks the same and you'll see a church that's dying where everybody likes the same music, it's, it's, it's dead. Where everybody sees the same way and they watch the same news channels and they have the same opinions. And, and I'm telling you, hands down, statistically, you find any church that looks the same all among the members, there's typically only 20 of them and they all have burial plots next to each other. It's not a thriving church. A thriving church is one that has a diverse unity. We have one faith. We all come to the same Savior, the one Lord. But yeah, we all have different kinds of functions, different giftings, different ways of thinking. And that's by design. Now, as a pastor, I've sometimes heard people undermine the role of the local church, you know, um, uh, or question whether things like church membership is an unbiblical concept that's just not found in the Bible. Uh, they openly ask, why can't it just be me and Jesus? They might say things like, you know, church membership is a practicality or coming to church is all nice and everything, but it's not for everybody. Surely we can survive and thrive when it's just me and Jesus, right? Maybe even better because now I'm not, I don't have to pray for, to, to forgive anybody because nobody's around to make me angry, right? So maybe I can even thrive better by myself. They openly ask those kinds of questions. Why, you know, I, I just, I'm more healthy by myself, I don't think so. And, and, it, and it leads me to several questions. First off, what do we do with passages like this one in Romans 12 that calls us members of the body, right? Not, not a member, but members of something, right? Of a body. What do we do with passages that refer to the church as a flock and you guys are sheep? Or, or you are children in the household of God, the family of God, the oikos of God. 
You know, we've made something that's meant to be seen in plurality, like we're, we're a plurality of believers here together. And in our, in our Western mindset, we've brought it down to a singularity that's about me and Jesus, and that's enough. Well, that, that totally undermines all the metaphors that God has for the church. Even the word church, ecclesia, means assembly of many, right? It, it can't be done in a singular way. One person is not the church. To have a flock, you have to have more than one sheep. To have, to, to have a body, you have to have more than a finger unit. You gotta have a body. Second, if we could do Christian life on our own, then how do we obey the 59 one another commands of the New Testament? You, you know, the New Testament gives 59 different commands that say things like bearing one another's burdens. That's Galatians 6, 2, or submitting to one another in humility. That's 1 Peter 5, 5, or lovingly rescuing each other from sin. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. All of those things, that, those one another commands, guess what they insinuate? A locality, a proximity. You see, I can't forgive anybody if the only person in the room to forgive is myself. <laughs> I can't bear with one another's burdens, if the only burdens I have to bear are my own. It doesn't say, bear your own burden. That would be a terrible scripture, wouldn't it? Bear your own burden. No, it gives the good news of bear one another's burdens. You can't do the one another's by yourself. So singular, individualistic Christianity is an antithetical to everything God commands us to be and do. We can't Obey God unless we obey God together. That's the way it must happen. We are called to be together with one another. Now, as it applies to Romans 12, we cannot be individually, okay, with our own unique gifts and functions, members of one another unless we are together with other members of the body. Thinking too highly of myself means thinking by myself, not allowing anybody else to speak to me about the way I think or my sin. You know, when I get this un unapproachability where nobody can tell me anything, there's a big problem there. That's thinking of myself, by myself, whereas sober thinking means thinking about who I am, what God has given me in relation to what he is doing among his people. It's not just me, it is me, but it is me in relation to others. Now, individualism cuts off the others part, and it's just about me. How many relationships have we ruined because of that? How many, how many marriages have ended because we've chopped off the others? How many daughters and sons aren't talking to their parents or to their brothers and sisters because we've chopped off the other's aspect. It's been about me. I'm the center. What I want, what my will is, that is the divine will. Everybody else can relate to me, but it's not about what I'm gifted to do for others. Friends, that is, that is a ruined relationship right there. Anytime we make others, it, we put ourselves in the center like that, and, and everyone else is in relationship to us that's, that's, that's a solar system that's bound to implode, explode and die. We're not called to be that way. 
So how do you know if you're thinking soberly according to the faith given to us? Paul answers that sober thinking manifests itself precisely by serving others. Now, this may seem like a redundant point. Paul's redundant about it. If you want to know if you're being sober thinking, you're not just here sitting on your rear receiving. You're up, you're moving, you're praying, you're loving, you're welcoming, you're being hospitable, you're bearing burdens, you're forgiving, you're, you're, you're going over and offering a shoulder for somebody who needs tears. You're laughing and joking and burning up fire pits with one another. I mean, this is, this is the kind of Christianity that we've been called to but by serving one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And when it comes to gifts like, uh, to, to gift texts, you know, scriptures that talk about spiritual giftings, like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Peter 5, I believe, sometimes we get so obsessed with trying to figure out what our spiritual gifting is, right? We, we, we love spiritual gifts tests. We, we love being handed a paper, like these Facebook tests, like find out which Disney princess you are, right? We tend to approach the spiritual giftings like that. We're gonna answer a few questions, and then those questions are gonna tell us inherently who we are, and yet, inevitably, that leads to some kind of boasting, like, oh, it tells me I'm a teacher, or I have the gift of knowledge, yeah! Take that, everybody, I got the gift of knowledge. Hey, it tends to work like that, but that's not how we're called to even think about our spiritual gifts. I think it's true that knowing what your spiritual gifts are can be helpful in understanding how God has called you to serve his body, but I don't think identifying what particular spiritual gifts you have is the most important aspect of all that. Whether you have the gift of service, whether you have the gift of leadership, whether you have the gift of wisdom, whether you have the gift of mercy, you know, which one of those are you not called to have? So I mean, in all of our obsession about figuring out which one of these am I, you know? Which school do I belong to? Which, which tribe do I get to be in? What colors do I get to wear? That's not the way we should approach spiritual gifts. You see, today, I'm gonna really disappoint you because we're not gonna define each one of these spiritual gifts. Like, we're not gonna talk about whether prophecy, what prophecy is and whether it still exists and whether you have it or not. Um, I think it's an important discussion. It'd be a great, a great use of our time, but it's not as important as the thing that we really need to hear in verse six. The actual individual gifts are important. I don't want to deny their importance. But as much as we might be tempted to hop right over the first part of verse 6 and debate about prophecy and talk about how service works and talk about teaching and we're all going to pass out tests and you're all going to find out whether or not you should be up here teaching or not. Instead of doing all that, I want us to, to just listen in on this this uh, immediate prequel that's, that's so important, this, these, these initial instructions. So put down your obsession with your gifting. Again, that's self. And hear what else Paul has to say about spiritual gifting. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He could cut it off. Everything else is examples. Prophecy, Teaching, and, and I hate to tell you this, you read Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 5, 
He's not giving an exhaustive list. These are not all the spiritual gifts they are. So there's many, many others, many, many other ways, including giving, including um, uh, serving, including wisdom, and all these other things that God has gifted us to do. So his point is not you trying to figure out which one you are. He wants to tell you how to use your gifts. He's not wanting you to become boastful about what gifts you have, but to consider how God has called you to employ them. Here's three things he says to us in this little section that we hop right over to get to the gift of prophecy. He tells us, number one, that our gifts are different, that they are all a result of grace, and number three, that they're meant to be used for others. Now, let's unpack each one of these. First, we have gifts that differ. Because our gifts differ, there is no room to play the comparison game, the shaming game, or the I'm better than you game when it comes to other believers. It's not our place to judge another person's effectiveness or importance in the body based on our own giving. This judging is essentially the same error that the Corinthians were committing in 1 Corinthians 12. And Paul mocks them outright. He talks about the idea of the eye telling the hand, I have no need of you, or the hand telling the feet, I have no need of you. Just as nonsensical as that would be for your eye to speak and tell your hand that it has no need, it's even more nonsensical for one member of the body of Christ to tell another that they're not important or essential or that their gifts don't matter. Such elitism undermines the fact that God has made each member indispensable to the body and he's given them functions that are from him. We're denying gifts that are from the Lord to his people. The body consists of many members. Each has its own function and and, and has an importance in the body. So it's not for us to kind of go, oh, he just has has the service gift or, oh, here goes that doctrinal teacher again. Why can't we just get together and throw money in a pot? You know, it's, it's like trying to compare. I wish I could say it doesn't happen among God's people, but as a pastor, even here at this church, I've seen it. I've, I've witnessed it happen. I remember when there was once a man who was genuinely a gifted teacher and theological thinker mocking someone who wasn't as theologically astute. The man who wasn't as theological as the, the teacher could not read Greek, but man, was he a master at building ramps for people who needed, needed it for, uh, uh, you know, people who had wheelchairs. He would, he would just find it, like he would find out who had a wheelchair, who needed a ramp, and he would go around and building it. And this more theologically astute guy would be like, all he cares about is building ramps. As if that's not important. As if that's not a gift from God to his people. Can you, can you see how wicked that is? How arrogant that is. How prideful that is. And it happens all the time. We judge people based on how many chairs they stack compared to us. We judge people based on how many times they volunteer in the children's ministry compared to us. We judge people based on how much they give or don't give. All of that's elitism that's meant to be thrown away. It's demeaning. And it's still self-exaltation that treats everyone else as lesser than us. When eyes mock their need of hands or the head denies the importance of the feet, the only result is a crippled body that's unhealthy. Now, how do we do this here? 
Well, I don't know. Are you, are you valuing the gifts of others well? Are you encouraging them in their gifts? Are you trying to, to help them do the things that God has called them to do? Are you, are you cheering them on even if that hand clap isn't for you? Are, you? are you raising up other people to use their unique gifting without judging them? The answer is no to that. Well, then you might be an eye telling the hand that it's not important. Or you might be the head telling the feet that they're not needed. My friends, there's all kinds of ways we do it. And I think it's worth acknowledging that a healthy body is one that functions properly with this diverse unity, this, this understanding that all of our gifts differ. This means celebrating our diversity wherever we see it. Celebrating our unity. Celebrating all the ways that people are not just like me. Praise God, we do not have 250 Justin Jacksons in the same single church. We'd all die. I mean, it's just sheer out war. I mean, one Justin might plant a church in that corner, another Justin would plant a church in that corner. Man, we'd be trying to raise the volume up to outsing the other churches in the corners of the room. But God hasn't built our church that way. He's built us to be diverse with differing parts that are joined together. And that's what makes the church healthy. Nowhere else in all the world will you find a unity quite like this. This is where black people, white people, Mexican people, Chinese people can come together with a single bond of faith, even with different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different education, different abilities and and competencies. We come together realizing that each one of us, down to the smallest child, is essential in this body of Christ. Realizing that whoever walks in these doors professing faith in Jesus, claiming him as their Lord, believing in the gospel, that they are a God-sent gift to this church. That he is given to shape us and mold us into his image. Now second, we must keep in mind that our gifts are a result of God's grace and his spirit at work among us. I just want to tell you something. God's not impressed with what you can do. He's not impressed by me and my ability to preach because he knows where my ability to preach came from, right? He's not impressed with you and your money giving or your leadership skills in this body. God's not impressed with you, but in his grace, he chooses to work through you for the good of the body. Any kind of gift that you might have that can be labeled as a spiritual gift and can be used in the, con- in the, in the context of a local church is explicitly a gift from God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do we have preachers getting cocky? Why do we have worship leaders walking around as if they are made of gold? Why do we have volunteers that act as if they stepped out, the church would implode? My friends, I could quit tomorrow and Grace Church could survive if you're a unified body focused on the gospel. Nobody, the the, the church and its unity rests on nobody's shoulders but Jesus. The church will not implode without me. It will not implode without Brandon. It will continue going. Why? Because God gifts his church. The moment I'm out of this pulpit, somebody else is up. 
He doesn't need me here. I'm just here by sheer grace. This is a gift from God and man, I get to use it and I'm, I'm grateful for it. But I also know that God is the one that will give that grace again if I'm not the one here to do it or Brandon's not the one here to do it or if each elder had to move away. I mean, God, God's gifted us once. He'll continue to gift us again and again and again and again. Why? Because he's a good God and his gifts are not meant to point to the one who received the gift. Gifts are meant to point to the giver, right? If anyone's in the way blocking the sight of the giver, then they need to get out of the way. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, we have a variety of gifts, services, and activities, but the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God who empowers them all in everyone. How incredible is that? This church's health and future resides on one being, doesn't it? The church across the street survives because of one being. The church is all around the world. What keeps the church of Iran from imploding under persecution? Well, one being. There's only one person who can say, I did that, and it's not a human. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ, who upholds his church, and through his own word, everything exists. It's him. And his perseverance, his preservation of his people, not us. And so I think in, in, in this, it's like, yeah, you know what? It, it, I've, I've heard it a lot. You know, when people start to hear things that they don't like or maybe, um, you know, something happens, they're like, well, you know how much I talk? Yeah, I, I do. And if you left, I don't know. But, but suppose I did. If you left, guess what? God gives it in other ways. Don't be so impressed with yourself. You survive, live, and serve all on grace. And if you're gone, God's grace will continue through someone else. Now, we have two options. We can kind of be downcast about that, or we can be freed up to serve. Like, man, what a grace. Have you ever thought of yourself, when you walk into the children's room to teach those kids, you are a living, moving model of grace. You are a reminder that Sunday that God has gifted his church. When you see people receiving visitors in hospitality, that is a living image that God has gifted his people. I mean, that hug doesn't just come from people. We are naturally sinners who hate each other. And yet when somebody walks up and greets you with a hug, I mean, that's a gift from God, not from men. Everything we do is by grace and works for God's purposes. So that should allow us to humble ourselves, right? Don't be so impressed and think that everything resides on you because it, it doesn't. Now, it's great if you want to join in. It's awesome to join in. The water's fine. Serving others is great. It's very rewarding. And I'm here not because I have to be, but because I want to be. In this moment, God has gifted me here and I'll be here and then, I'll either die, retire, move away or something and God will gift you again with somebody better. We all live in this grace in that way. And that's how we should see ourselves day in and day out. Our gifts are meant to spotlight the giver and the giver alone. Finally, and I won't go too long on this one, but our gifts are meant to be used with passion. Paul says very simply, whatever your gift is, 
do it. Whatever your gift is, do it. If you've been gifted with mercy, man, go, go be merciful. He says, those who prophesy, whatever that might mean, it is to be done in proportion to our faith. He says the same thing about other gifts. Givers must give in generosity. Leaders must lead with zeal. Mercy givers must give mercy with cheerfulness. So they're not doing it out of obligation, but because they want to, they're excited to. What amazing thought is that? I think we must remember that whatever we do in God's church, it's meant to display his goodness. And so there's a lot at stake. How you teach the children, either begrudgingly or joyfully, how you serve in giving hospitality to others, whether you give because you kind of feel like there's some command somewhere in the Bible that says you've got to give your 10% and you just have to do it in order to feel blessed by God, whatever. All that's wrong. You serve out of joy and out of the abundance of wanting to do your gift well. Why? Because it's through your gift that people are reminded of God's grace and goodness. So we come to our close here. We are doing nothing else when we serve each other than what Christ has already done for us. He made himself poor so that we may be rich. He took on the form of a servant so that we could become sons and daughters. He died so that we can live. So, so what are we doing that's any different or more than what Christ has done for us? If we're gonna live out the gospel and apply it, the first way that you can apply it when it comes to living with other people is to not think too much about yourself, but to consider how you're here for other people. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you'll help us empty ourselves as Christ emptied himself and died on the cross for our sins. We pray that you will be with us as we, uh, Lord, engage in self-crucifixion every day so we may die to self, deny the self, and live. Uh, for your glory, displaying your goodness and mercy. We pray this in your son's name, amen.